Hello and welcome to the Town Mile Podcast. This is the 46th installment, 46th episode. This is year number five, I believe. We we passed over uh, recently, hit that milestone of five years of, of completing this and doing this project. So pretty surreal to look back. And if you hit play and are listening to this, thank you. Uh, really sincerely, thank you. Very, very, a uh, lot, uh, lot of gratitude um, if you're, no matter where you are, and um, couldn't be more excited to put this out. This is a, an, an episode I'm, I'm very excited to, to get out there and to share. Um, two days ago, we recorded with none other than Jeff Perlman. Jeff Perlman is the um, best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, he has done, I believe this is his 10th book uh, that we will be talking about. Um, the, the book that he is releasing on, on actually is out on 1025. Uh, is called The Last Folk Hero. It's the life and myth of Bo Jackson. If uh, anybody that was born in the 80s, you know, late 80s, if you were following sports, following culture, pop culture, um, I'm sure you're very much in tune with how massive Bo Jackson was. And Jeff sat down with us and uh, did an interview with us, talked about the book. I had sent him an email and uh, asking if if it were cool, I think before he starts doing, you know, the the big guys, Bill Simmons podcast, he's been on, he's been on Chris Long, he's been on everyone from Dan Patrick to Rich Eisen uh, with some of his previous work he's done. Um, I emailed him and said, you know, would you be cool to talk to you? You know, if you have some time, we'd be honored to have you. He responds and says, absolutely, would love to do it. Um, do me a favor. Here's my publicist email. So that was different. It's first, probably the first guest we've ever had that has a publicist. So that was really rad. She was able to set that up and actually sent us a copy of the book. So we were able to get through, you know, and get that started. But very, very excited. Jeff, also, if you were following uh, the TV series Winning Time on HBO, who actors from John C. Riley to Adrian Brody, some massive names were a part of that series. It was a great series. Well, that was based on Jeff's book, uh, Showtime, about the 1980s Lakers. And then he also, I think his last project was on um, the 20, kind of the 2000 era, Kobe Shaq Lakers as well. So um, anyways, I'm we're beyond stoked to get this out again, uh, October 25th. The last folk heroes out, so very excited to get this interview in and uh, to share it and to uh, to get it out there. So let's get it rolling. Here's our conversation with Jeff. Again, thanks for listening. I'm so sorry. <laughs> hey, Jeff. I really am. I really am. That's not cool. I, no uh, problem, all, man. It's all good, man. I've been on an amazing roll lately of not fucking this up. Like I've been, I was like, this is amazing. I've got my stuff so tight. I'm not missing any interviews. <laughs> and then I get my freaking, my lovely publicist writes me and says, you're screwing over the Philly guys. You never want to make Philly guys. <laughs> it's always a, always a big mistake. No problem it's whatsoever. All, all good. All good, man. We're, we're not, you know, we don't have a, maybe 250 to 300 people will hear this, hopefully. Hey, 
You that's paid enough, two million. You know, maybe we'll get three of them to to pick up a a book. But no, we're, we're definitely not the people you gotta apologize okay. to. We're we're honored to have you, man. Thanks so much. Of course, of course. Great to great to see great to see you, meet you. I know you've been uh, part of the reason. I feel like I back in maybe five years ago, I, I put together like a blog and felt inspired was, was honestly because of things you were writing every day and kind of seemed pretty fearless with like, not even worrying about, like, if you get an idea, get it, get pen to paper. So that's kind of oh, right has, it has inspired us to, to kind of get this going. So are you, in because, oh yeah, I just want to say, because my, um, my wife is always like, she's like, don't tweet politics. Just don't, you have a book coming out. Don't tweet politics. And I'm like, kind of got to, like, I just got to be you, you know? And yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm right. from South Dakota and I, I could tell you, I align more with, with where you're at than, uh, but anyways, I'm not. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't. Don't and if you didn't, you didn't, you know, we're all. Yeah, right. yeah, for sure. But no, this is awesome, man. We appreciate the time. Um, we're, we're stoked to talk about, you know, this book right here, the, the last folk hero. Um, I've heard, I mean, there's been a lot of Michael K, your buddy. Because yep. we're talking about it already, Kyle Brandt. So we, we figured before you get kind of with all the heavyweights, we can give you a little tune-up and talk. You guys to are you. the heavyweights. I don't Maybe Bill Simmons is here. <laughs> you guys are the heavyweights. You guys are the Appreciate that, man. But I know what, I mean, when is the, the release, the actual official release date when people can, well, I don't think you can pre-order. Yeah, 25th. 1025. So that's great. Do you, before we kind of dive into that, I wanted to just ask you, do you miss covering baseball during no. the playoffs? No, Zero. not at all. Zero. The travel, like what, what was the, I got tired of baseball. I've watched, if I'm not going to a game, like taking my kid to a game, I probably watched this year. I've probably watched 12 innings of baseball. Okay. I just got tired. I just got burnt out. I still gotcha. love the game. I love yeah. going live. I love watching Dodger Stadium. I love going to Dodger Stadium. I live not that far away, but I just don't have the passion that I used to have for it. Gotcha. Okay. I, why, cool. do they, why do they put meaningful playoff games on in the middle of the afternoon? Do you know why they do that? I have no idea. I mean, it's better than what they used to do. They used to put them on. You were a kid and you could never watch a game. Like they put them on so late at night on school nights. Oh, they still do that for the World Series. Yeah. It's all about ad revenue. Whenever, when in doubt, it has something to do with ad revenue. Sure. Absolutely. Nice well, yeah, let's uh Thanks, Max. <laughs> talk about about every two years. Is that what, what your frequency's been to put a book out? Yeah, two, two and a half. Pretty close. So I guess I'm interested in kind of how a process for you to start, I guess, writing a book. I I, I know I I've seen you tweet out stuff of where you have boxes per year of maybe of, of maybe 94 when Bo played for the Angels. Yep. Um, I was wondering if you could just talk to us about how do you start to put that research together and then put pen to paper? I mean, it's a long pain in the ass, brick to your head process. Um, the big thing for me early on, I, when I, once I have, all right, I know I'm doing a Bo Jackson book. First thing I do is go to eBay and I buy every media guide I can find. Like every, and if they're not on eBay, I'll just do a Google search and find someone who's selling old Auburn football media guides, old Royal Raider, Angels, White Sox, media guides, Memphis Chicks when he played minor league. And you just find them all. And the second thing I do once I get them is I go through every single name in those media guides and I'll make a file for every single person. And the third thing you do is you get their contact info. And while you do via white pages, 
via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Then while I'm doing that, um, I start building a library. So not to, I buy every book there is about Bo Jackson related to Bo Jackson, related to Auburn, the different teams, George Brett wrote it on autobiography, I'll buy it, all that stuff. But I also, I have a newspapers.com account, which is a huge database of old articles. And I'll literally go day by day by day, Bo Jackson, May 1st, 1986, most May 2nd, and search for every article that involves Bo Jackson. And weirdly, what you're looking for isn't what you guys might think. Like, you know, like the article where he hit, ah, Bo had a great game today. He hit two home runs against Milwaukee. Like, that's cool. I love the articles where it's like, it'll be a small blurb in like the Kansas City Star. And it'll be like, spotted Bo Jackson with real estate agent Rita Stevens looking at a house in Overland Park. Because then you're like, all right, I'm going to call Rita Stevens. I'm going to see what she remembers was showing Bo Jackson. So it's all about the tiny... My first book was about the 86 Mets. And I remember seeing a little blurb in the New York Post that a pitcher named Sid Fernandez. And it was like spotted Sid Fernandez in like the East Village eating 12 slices of pizza. And like that stuff is gold. Like that stuff is gold. So that's really, you're looking for it all to build a day by day. But when you get the real crazy, weird stuff, that's what you're looking for. So that just reminds, I mean, I got, I got your paperback right here. You're the Um, son the, 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 if we could just talk about that for a second, the 30 for 30 film you had in your book, it, it was Dwight Gooden had not really talked about why he missed the parade yet. Um, but then I think of the documentary you had, like what was, yeah. while you're researching, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you had, everyone was probably like, we know why he missed the parade. I mean, what was that like trying to, when you were putting that book together? To, to well, just... I mean, the thing is like, Number one, Gooden wouldn't talk to. I think Gooden was in prison when I was working on that. Okay. Um, and like the thing is, you it, this is the reality of the business. You can't get everything, right? You can't get everything. And at that point in time, these guys weren't that comfortable talking openly about how coked up they were. Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry, they just weren't, right? So I knew that he had been using cocaine that year. Like I knew but I didn't know enough where I could write it. And there is a difference. Like I know certain guys are using steroids in baseball. Like I know, but I don't always know enough that I can write it, you know? So sure. it's just a, the burden, there's a burden of proof and it's not, I'm just going to tweet something. Cause I think it like when you're writing a book, you have to know. Sure. So over time he felt more comfortable and that 30 for 30, that series was awesome. Like awesome. Yeah. I loved every minute I was in it a lot. I freaking I loved, it. I loved it. I yeah. loved it. And I thought it was really great and beautiful. I just, there were some things I just didn't get. And I loved working on that book because I'm, I'm a New York kid. I love that team. I grew up watching that team. So for me, that was like diving into my own nostalgia, into my right. own Yeah, I think you were, you may have been the one that said that there were 59 pitches. I guess I don't know the number. It wasn't me, but that's okay. crazy. Yeah, yeah. But wasn't there 59 pitches that they would have, that they had a yeah. chance to win the series? Yeah, that's insane. I feel like my big moment in that book in a weird way, the Mets did a super, 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 super obscure song called Get Metsmerized. And it was a rap song. It was so bad. It was like, you need to listen. It's on YouTube now. It's had a gazillion uh, listens. And ended up selling like 200 copies. And like the best verse is like, when they want a batter filled with terror, they call on me, Rick Aguilera. Like it's so, <laughs> it's so like run DMC on crack awful. And um, I was the one who really started <laughs> writing about that. And now get mesmerized is like this thing. And it was in the 30 for 30. 
Yeah. It's had a lot of views and there's a website gets mesmerized about the Mets. So I always felt good seeing get mesmerized, get his due as the worst rap song. <laughs> right. That's great. That's awesome. That's amazing. So if we, you know, looking at, so now that Bo's, you know, the book is complete. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I think it's one of the longer ones you've, you've done. I'd, I'd have to go back and. I'm not sure. It's in the talk. It's in the conversation. Okay. Yeah. What is, I mean, to, to like talk about like, what is the, when it's done, when it's completed and you, and, and it's in, and you're in the process, you are now of, it's about to come out. What's that like is for you as, as a writer to, to finish the project? It's uh, simultaneously euphoric and terrifying. Um, when the box of books, when the first book arrives in my house, like they sent me one copy of the book initially and it arrives in my house. I'm not exaggerating this. First of all, it's joy. It's relief. It looks good. Okay. Then I walk around with it all the time, reading through it, looking through it, looking through the notes, looking through the pictures, everything. You inevitably find things, little tiny errors. Like, okay, perfect example. Um, I put east instead of west when someone drove from a town to Auburn. Or I put west instead of east, one or the other. That shit burns me up to no end. Like, it kills me. And I hire two fact checkers, but it's on me. It's not on them. It is on me. Um, I had someone's last name with an I instead of a Y. Mm. That stuff burns. It's someone nobody would know. It's like a person, a nondescript person, a private citizen. Nobody would know except that person, but it burns me up. So it's that kind of stuff. It's like um, knowing you just don't know how people are going to respond to a book. Like, I don't know. I don't know what Bo Jackson's going to say. I don't know. You know, I think it's pretty much an, I think it's, a trip, the book is a 99% tribute to Bo Jackson and his athletic gifts and what he came from. But I do write about like the girlfriend and the wife in college. And I do write about him having an agent when he shouldn't have had an agent, small things in, in the grand scope, but he may hate it. I don't know. So you just, it's scary, but it's exciting. And also like, it is a culmination of like two years, two and a half years of just nonstop grind, nonstop grind, where you think, how am I going to get this done? And God, I can't, I can't spend another day thinking about Bo Jackson. And when you see it all together, it's like you feel. And the fact that I've written 10 books, like, I'm not saying this is a braggy way, because I don't, I think there are many more valuable professions in writing, writing sports books. But like, I didn't see my career going this way. Like I was at the University of Delaware. It doesn't even feel that long ago. And I just want to be an SI writer. I just want to write for Sports Illustrated. So you see like the author of 10 books and you're like, I, how the hell did this happen? You know? Right, so, right. So I guess I was just thinking about earlier, kind of thinking of, of questions. And so when you have a project like this, are there maybe a foundation of like 10 anecdotes or 10 pillars or something about Bo Jackson that you get down to paper first and then organically you know, try to connect the dots or, or what is like, talk about what, maybe what that process is. Actually the opposite, the total opposite. I'm not saying that's not true for other writers. It might be for me. I have no outline. I have no, like, Oh, this book is going to be about this. You write a book proposal that you hand in to, to sell the book. It's utter bullshit. It's like total bullshit because how am I going to know before 720 interviews? What I don't know. You know what I mean? Like you can't, if, if my book ends up being like my book proposal, I failed as a researcher, you know, like it's ridiculous. So really what happens is you kind of go along and you discover certain pillars as you move. Like to me, him growing up in poverty in Bessemer, Alabama, without a father with a severe stutter being held back 
as a bully. Well, that's a pillar of this book. Him going to Auburn and emerging as this true sport phenomenon. That's a pillar of this book, right? I found his time in Memphis in the minor leagues as a real pillar, this transitional period in his life from being a, mm. a young adult to an adult, a real pillar. Obviously, the, uh, the arrival in Kansas City when he becomes a pro is a pillar. Then him picking two sports is a huge pillar. Um, having this massive success, there's this moment he's, he leads off. One of my favorite moments of all time is him leading off the 89 All-Star game with a home run on this beautiful day with Vince Scully and Ronald Reagan in the booth. I mean, it's crazy serendipity mm -hmm. with the first Bo Nose full ad of the Bo Diddley ad playing in that All-Star game. Like that's a huge pillar moment of him bursting that and uh, the running over the Brian, Brian Bosworth on Monday Night Football are these two major pillars of like he has arrived. He's this phenomenon. And I think another huge pillar is the hip injury in the 91 playoff game and him all of a sudden dissolving and not becoming Bo Jackson anymore, becoming a hobble Bo Jackson. So those are like the pillars, but you only discover them as you go along and moments hit you and you go, oh yeah, this is a transition point. This is a transition point. And you don't even consciously really think about it. You just, all of a sudden you look back and you put a lot of energy into those moments. Right. So those transition points could come from anywhere, I guess, research or maybe someone that you talk to. Sure. That you would that be, I mean, you don't, the, the thing is like, I, I, I really, uh, I'm adamant about this. Like you shouldn't know where a book is going. And if an author tells you beforehand what the book is going to be, I just think it's a flawed outlook. Like um, I, I'm like you guys, I'm an East coast guy. I'm from, I live in California now. I went to university of Delaware. I was not well-versed in Auburn at all, at all. I knew, I didn't even know what war Eagle was. I heard it, but I didn't know what any of that stuff was. And you start digging into Auburn and you start talking to players. And what's really fascinating is you basically have these athletes living in a cocoon, which is Sewell Hall, which is a hall for athletes. And Barkley is there at the same time as Bo. And they're living in this dorm and they're fed shrimp and steak and mashed potatoes and great food. And their expectations are school is kind of important, but you perform on Saturday, right? That's it. And it's a fascinating moment of this building with probably 70% African-American students in a way, inadvertently or advertently, depending on who you ask, walled off from the rest of the student body. And they love these guys on Saturdays, but heaven forbid you date someone, you know, heaven. And one of the moments that I found riveting, Bo Jackson's one of his closest friends at Auburn was Lionel James, a running back, went on to play in the NFL for a long time. He has since passed since I interviewed him. And he told me there was one year where the athletic dorm was, um, they were doing uh, repairs and they put all the athletes in trailers around Auburn, like mobile home units. And the coach, the head coach, Pat Dye calls Lionel James and Bo and another guy into his office. And he says, I know you guys are fooling around with white women. It's fine. You can do that. It's your life, but I'm going to put your trailer a little farther away from the center of campus, just so you don't get in trouble for doing it or cause a stir. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's insane. There yeah. was a yeah. there was a fraternity at Auburn, Kappa Alpha. They used to hang a huge, enormous Confederate flag outside the dorm, and they had this Confederacy Confederacy Pride Week where they had a parade. They had a parade where all the brothers would be on horseback in Confederate soldier uniforms. Their girlfriends would wear antebellum dresses, hmm. and they would hire young African American kids to dress up as slaves. Wow. I mean, that is that, are we sure? I, uh, <laughs> Go ahead, man. Yeah. I went, I, uh, 
I mean, kind of related, but I, my, I had a friend that went to LSU and uh, I went, you know, it was, this was a long time ago. I visited him and we drove around campus and just driving by those sorority homes and you know fraternity homes. They're just, they're like plantain ma- plantation mansions. It's just like, it's wild to me that those, those buildings like still exist on, in those it's for whatever cool forever bullshit tradition they want to honor it's it's just it's just weird <laughs> and creepy and awkward yeah. and like the right. uh the president of auburn at the time was a uh, was an alum of that fraternity and some african-american students went up to him and said do you think maybe they could take down the confederate flag and his response was i don't see what the big deal is right yeah well, wow listen 2022 and there's probably yeah. probably you know it's yeah. sad yeah for sure um so you, I think you had spoken with Bo, I think you had said, or, or on another interview, I think I heard, but he wasn't involved in this project. Correct. Um, I can tell you the story, not the story. Did, Absolutely. Did he want to, yeah. did he want to be at all? Or I know he's kind no. of like a, pri- a private guy, right? Very guarded. So I, uh, <laughs> I got the book deal. I reached out to him early on. I sent him a bunch of books in a letter. I had an address and he called me back maybe five days later, or four days later. And he's like, uh, he's like, um, See, I just burped there, and because this is on video, you guys got to see it. Uh, He's like, um, <laughs> I don't know. Hey, this is Bo. And I'm like, hey, Bo, this is Jeff. And he, he was very nice, right? He was, I'm driving to get my wife a salad. I want to give you a call. And he basically was like, I don't mind that you're writing a book, but I have a lot of people approach me about doing books, and I just don't have any interest in it. Um, he's like, it's nothing personal. He literally said, it's nothing personal. I just, I'm not interested. And I said, all right, that's fine. You know, it's cool. I appreciate you calling me. It was a really nice conversation. He talked about his life a little bit. It was cool. Like, it was cool, very cool. And then I got really, really, really lucky, like preposterously lucky, which is someone told me, um, Bo had a book come out in 1990 called uh, Bo Knows Bo. It was his autobiography. It was really good. Dick Schaap, right? Dick Schaap. Schaap, Late Dick Schaap. Great, late, great father of a friend of mine, Jeremy Schaap. And uh, Dick Schaap, some point after he wrote the book, donated all his notes, transcripts, and audio recordings of those interviews to the Auburn Library. And I called the Auburn Library and I paid whatever fee it was. And they sent me the piles and piles of transcripts, all the audio cassettes, a bunch of the notes Bo used, art- I mean, Dick used articles, stuff like that. A lot of the stuff never made the Bo book, like really good stuff, never made the Bo book for one reason or another. And uh, it really, I've said this before, but it's genuinely true. It was like having a conversation with 28-year-old Bo. That's incredible. That's incredible. the great, I mean, it's Dick Shap, Shap Talk. I remember getting home from church when I was a kid and Shap Talk would be on ESPN. And my yeah. dad would watch the sports reporters with, you know, Dick Shap and Feinstein, Bob Lupica. Yeah, Lupica was on there. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. So Bo knows Bo, I, I got to make a note of that to, to read that at some point. Yeah. Um, it's a good autobiography. I love that. So I was uh, 18 when that book came out. High school. I used to go to my local library all the time and just gobble up sports books. And I remember reading Bo Knows Bo and freaking loving Bo Knows Bo. Yeah. I right. still love it. Yeah. He, he, was, he was so big. I mean, the, I, I remember the shoes. And, and growing up in South Dakota, I mean, if, if you, stuff's hitting South Dakota, you're, yeah, you're, right. you're massive. Right. And I remember there were friends of mine that had the 34 trainers and just thinking like, wow, those must've been $110, you know, in 1990. And that was yeah. the, like the coolest thing, you know, I, I can remember. Um, I don't know. I, I just think of him hurting his hip and having essentially getting replaced and still playing 
professional baseball is just incredible in its own because how many years after did he play after his hip did he play baseball so it's insane the hip injury happens in a playoff game in early 1991 um he reports to spring he, he after that he signed a two million dollar contract with the royals but um it would kick in by a certain date so he reports to spring training he's on crutches he's demoralized he's doing the bike and everyone's saying the right things oh he looks good but he didn't look good he looked horrible mm-hmm. and the, the royals release him before the contract can kick in and bo's like he was furious and he felt and i will say like not in his defense he's like there's no loyalty and blah 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 and it's like they told you they didn't want you playing football like the royals made it very clear from day mm-hmm. one they do not like you playing football that they considered it a risk you chose to play football that's totally your right to play but you can't really be mad at them. I ne- I've never understood Bo Jackson being mad at the Royals for releasing him. You know, like, you made the choice to play. You killed your hip. That was on you. That's fine. But, but these are the repercussions of your actions. He, um, he signs with the White Sox as, like, a gimmick. A, a, a gimmick for the White Sox. The White Sox kind of viewed it as, like, we're not going to pay him very much. Best case scenario, best possible case scenario, maybe he plays in a couple years. Worst case, there's a White Sox hat in the next Nike ad, and he get, we get some attention. Um, Bo rehabilitates his ass off. It's the hardest he's ever worked in his life with the White Sox. He's work. They put in a pool in the new stadium uh, just for him to work, you know, one of those tubs with the, with the tides and et cetera. This is busting ass, busting ass. Herm Snyder's our trainer, busting ass. He returns at the end of 91, and – it's amazing. Like it's this like amazing. And he has this moment. His first home run was against the Yankees and Neil Heaton in Chicago. And he's rounding the bases and he's just full of emotion. It's this amazing comeback. And it wasn't with an artificial hip. It was basically, they spent the year strengthening the muscles around the injury, hoping that would work. Well, he reports to spring training in 92 and the hip is not getting better. And his one leg was actually had shortened uh, because of atrophy in the injury area. And he was now like really hobbling around. And there was a really sad moment in the spring training game, spring training game against Detroit. He hits a grounder, I think, to short. He's just hobbling to first. And Cecil Fielder, the Tigers' first baseman at the time, holds up his hands like, don't make that throw. Don't make that throw. It's just going to embarrass him. And um, he leaves spring training. He has hip replacement that year. And he, uh, he comes back for 93. He's the White Sox primary DH. His numbers are not amazing, but they're good. He hits a home run to clinch the uh, ALC, the clinch the American League West for the White Sox. So it's an amazing comeback. He was never the same, ever nice. the same. But he was playing with a 1990s artificial hip, which is basically the same hip you would have given your grandma in 1990. It was plastic. Sure. It had metal bolts. And as the hip was used, because a hip has to move with your, with your body, the metal would carve up the plastic and little shards of plastic would actually fall off into your body. It was an archaic system, and him coming back was absolutely bonkers. Right, and, and that was a good White Sox team. I mean, like you mentioned, the one that I mean, they had Frank Thomas. Like that was for him to make that be Robin Ventura, George yeah. Bell, Jack McDowell. Uh, I think was yeah, Wilson Alvarez, Jack McDowell. Yeah. Um, it was a great White Sox team. It was a great, really, White good, really good Sox team. I always, I always thought, I always kind of considered him like you know all those you know, crazy stories that surround him, those like mythological, insane stories that no one believes. I always kind of considered him like like a modern day Achilles almost because 
he was taken down by this freak at this freak injury, you know, at the top of his top of his powers. So that's actually really good. Um, <laughs> I always thought of him as Paul Bunyan. Yeah. Just like, and I started the book with a Paul Bunyan reference because yeah. uh, just like, can you even believe these tall tales? But Achilles is a great, he really was. It was a, I mean, it was a fluky, fluky, fluky. He's so powerful running forward. The Bengals linebacker, Kevin Walker, basically is basically grabbing onto his leg for dear life. And the, his force going forward yanks the hip out. And the crazy thing is, and because Bo Jackson was just batshit crazy, he kind of wiggled to get the hip go back into the joint, yeah. which is so disgusting. That's crazy, yeah. <laughs> and I think he still walked, right? At, did he walk back to the – maybe he fell down, but he No, didn't. no, no. He, well, he fell down. He was on the turf. He got up. He was helped off the turf. The Raiders, I mean, I don't know what they were thinking, but he basically sat on the sideline for the rest of the game. With like, his kids. His kids were with playing with him, kid. I think. So, all right, great story. Mark Goob is a Royals pitcher. Um was at the game and on the sideline and his kids were in the stands with Linda, his wife and Bo turned to Mark Gubiza because Gubiza came up to him. He's like, are you okay? He's like, do me a favor. My kids are up there. Can you go get them and bring them down? So Mark Gubiza, Royals pitcher went into the stands and got Bo Jackson's kids and brought them down. That's amazing. There, And then instead of going to, you know, to the hospital, like you're sitting there waiting till after the game to, it's insane. It is so insane. He's like in the locker room after the game. They finally take him. The next day, he's getting x-rays, and a doctor says, see all that black on your hip? He's like, yeah. He goes, that's all blood. And Bo Jackson said it was the only time he ever felt like he was going to pass out. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And that was the same time, I'm sure you remember this, where I remember that there was a, there was a boxing writer that had the mustache. I remember he had a piece on ESPN where he was the Burt Sugar. About- I don't think it was Burt Sugar. Burt Kimball? It was a guy that had the, maybe he wasn't even a boxing writer. He was an SI writer. I, I can't think of his name, yeah. but he did a piece about, because Mike Tyson, that was a year that it, it, the rape stuff happened for him. Uh-huh. You had Magic, who the HIV came out, and Bo, I think that was all the same year where there was oh, that's really three interesting. giants that, kind of fell you know that we're all wow. the same same i can't think of you, you would know who he is I, I can't think of his name i just in any, Potter, maybe? Yeah, i don't know anyway yeah i i I, in any, I think he just passed away a couple years back but i guess what were some what were like takeaways when you really think about it like what are some things that you took away from it that you didn't expect to i didn't expect so many so many of the stories to check out and be real like i really mean that like i just Cause there's so many like tall tale, you know, like I was saying to someone before, like everyone has their hometown superstar, whether it's a kid who winds up playing at like UT Chattanooga or winds up the majors. And everyone tells these stories about the guy that's preposterous. Like we all do like, man, he could throw 96. And meanwhile, he was really throwing 89, you know, like we all do that. We all do that with our hometown guys. And like, there is this story about Bo Jackson in high school where I truly was like, there's no way this happened. This is 0% chance, which is they were playing Fairfield high in a game. And people told me Bo Jackson hit a ball so high into the shallow outfield that by the time it came down, he was rounding third base. And I thought <laughs> there's a 0% chance. That's true. That's ridiculous. But I start telling, talking to people who are at the game and they're like, I'm telling you, it's true. I'm telling you, it's true, man. It's true. I swear. Craziest thing I've ever seen. And I reached out. I finally found the guy who was playing left field, Eddie Scott from Fairfield high school, who was under the ball. And he's like hundred percent true. 
He's like, I lost the ball. I have no idea how high that thing went. It just kept going up. It comes down, it hits the grass. I grab it, I look up, Bo is rounding third. So Bo literally hit a ball so high and was so fast that he wound up rounding third by the time it came down. That's incredible. The other one, right, the other one's insane, like insane. I mean, there are a million that are insane, insane. There really are. But like first major league at bat, September 2nd, 1986. He's facing Steve Carlton of the White Sox, Hall of Famer. First of all, he had no idea who he was, like never heard of him. Like any, his first, his first at bat is his first hit. He beats out a grounder to second and he's clocked. So wait, behind the, uh, behind the screen, behind home plate, all these scouts are sitting there clocking it. And Art Stewart from the Royals clocks it. And he's like, this can't be right. And he turns to some other scouts. He's like, what do you guys get? And a bunch of guys are like, nah, mine isn't right. I missed that one. Well, what'd you get? He's like three, six. Guy, they're like three six, three six. The fastest recorded time ever by a right-handed hitter home the first is three five by Mickey Mantle. In his major league debut, Bo Jackson ran the second fastest home to first. It's just like not even meaning to almost, just like the, the almost accident. It's like, well, I just it's just what I do. Sure. He ran a four one three at Auburn, shows up with the Raiders. They ask him to run a 40 in pads on grass, and he runs a four one seven. How much stretching do you think he did before running that, if any? Probably zero. He probably was like picking his <laughs> nose, like nothing. He was like lift weights, nah, you know, maybe pool, nah. Like he just was a freak. Like he just really was a freak and just gifted beyond belief and knew how to use the marketing skills that were given to him and really was the whole package. And you know what's cool? He's not like, like guys like us would probably, there's this instinctive element to be like, oh, it's such a shame he's not in the Hall of Fame. It's such a shame. He could have been Eric Dickerson. He could have been Mike Trout. He doesn't give a shit. He does not care. He hasn't lost one iota of sleep over not being Eric Dickerson, over not being in a Hall of Fame. He's in the College Hall of Fame. He's in the Auburn Hall of Fame. And like, I love that. You know what I mean? Like, I love that. Yeah. I think we oversimplify things. Like, who cares? You're not in a Hall of Fame. Like, you lived your life the way you wanted to. I was going to yeah. say, like, it seems like his biggest weapon was his mind. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, you just like, he I, can, I can do this. I'm just going to go fucking do it. <laughs> I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And I don't really want to be your buddies, like teammates. I don't really want to be your buddies. I'm not going to go out chasing women with you. It doesn't really interest me. I don't really drink. It doesn't interest me. I'm just not that guy. I sold all my oats at Auburn. I'm just this guy and I'm going to play and I'm not going to care. I care, but I'm not living and dying with this. There are more important things in my life than whether I'm in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and I almost feel like some of that stuff with Bo is still happening to this day. Um, I don't know if you're... so. Grew up, I'm from South Dakota, and he, I don't know, maybe five years ago, he did a live interview on Monday Night Football, and he was in Platt, it said Bo Jackson, Platt, South Dakota, and it was in the fall, so he was hunting, he's a big hunter, yeah. so he was hunting pheasants or something, like, what the hell is Bo Jackson doing in Platt, and there was somebody that I knew that was, you know, lived in Platt, so yeah, he, he comes out here and hunts, he's got some land, and, you know, he meets up with, you know, and, and hunts, you know, that that's just kind of the the legend I remember, almost I remember after the that 30 for 30 that came out about him that was a long a few years ago now he's just be, he's become like this an unbelievable hunter too like at the end of the movie they, they were just showing him uh, clips of him just like uh hitting this target like i don't know like with the bow and arrow i think hundreds of feet so hundreds of footage away or whatever <laughs> yeah like, so he used to um just good he, at was, that. he was he pissed a lot of royal teammates off because he would bring his bow and arrow set and a target into the clubhouse 
<laughs> and he would shoot. He would set the target on <laughs> across the dugout and shoot across the clubhouse. It infuriated people. Um, and I do think, like, if you ask a hundred people who know of Bo Jackson, where do you think Bo lives now? They'd all be Alabama, LA. He, he lives in Burr Ridge, Illinois, right? Wow. Like, he lives in Burr Ridge, <laughs> Illinois. He drives a Ford truck. He shovels his driveway. He runs like these food companies. Like he's just a guy. He's a grandpa. He's really happy being a grandpa, first time grandpa. He's just a guy. He doesn't need to be Bo Jackson every day. He doesn't, he doesn't need us to tell him how great he is. Hence, probably one of the reasons he didn't cooperate with the book. He's probably like, I don't, what do I need this for? Right. Well, that's, I, I guess then that's probably, I, I would think a, a great takeaway. Uh, I mean, so many readers and so many people that revere Bo are, are probably, I'm sure, ecstatic about, about this, you know, th- about this release. I mean, is there, is there something you hope readers get out of it or is it something, I guess, is, do you even think that hard about a project that you normally do? I mean, is there a reader's takeaway? Is, is that, is that important? I mean, I guess I have two. Uh, number one is I do think, I don't mean this to sound like in a pompous way, because so, I really don't, but I think like in a way, when you write a book, you become like a quote unquote sports historian, you're doing something so that people remember this, you know, and that people will, and I want people to remember Bo Jackson. Like I want people to know the legend of Bo Jackson and how amazing this guy was. I do. Like, I want my kids to at least know he existed and that you should go on YouTube and you should watch him climb up the wall and you should watch him lead off the all-star game and throw out Harold Reynolds, like all that stuff. It's important in sports history. And he's an important figure. And number two, this is my number one, should be my number one. I just want people to freaking enjoy a good book. You know, like all we do these days, it feels like is sit on social media and worry about politics and climate change and et cetera and et cetera. And we gossip and like, I do that as much as anyone, but sometimes it's nice just to read a book and have a little escapism in your life. So if the book accomplishes nothing else, but give people some enjoyment, I feel like I, I won that one. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, salute, man, for for getting it done and, and having it come out. Um, I, I get. I was also thinking about how when, when you're actually the process of writing, you know, in a day from day to day, is there a certain number of, of pages or column that you think about filling, or does it just does it just naturally happen based on how you're feeling or what you're doing that day? I mean, what's that process like to kind of make a timeline? So I got this advice from a friend of mine, uh, this guy, John Wertheim, who's written a lot of books and a a close friend. And I met my wife at his wedding and um, he's great. And he said to me early on, he's like, uh, set a limit every day for yourself, like set a a minimum number of words. So like for me, I usually say, got to write a thousand words a day, thousand words a day. And the great day happens when like, you're taking a huge chunky quote from someone and you can just cut and paste the quote and you do the word count and it's like 450 words. And you're like, oh, I just have to write 550 and I'm done today. Like, I love those days. <laughs> those are the best. So thousand, sometimes you get 2000. Sometimes you have a great day and you hit 4,000. Um, that's kind of how I get, I basically, if I have two years to write a book, I spend a year and a half just researching. And then I take the last six months and it's, it's the hardest part. It's a day-to-day writing of the book. Sure. Sure. Are we doing okay for time? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. You good with it? All right. Matt, go, I know you had a had some some good stuff you were researching as well. Um, well, I mean, it's not about Bo Jackson, but you know, winning time has kind of become you know a big success. Uh, with it's the, all because of me. 
Yeah. Talking about, That's talking right. about cameo, the back of my head. <laughs> I didn't even notice the back of my head in episode one. That was me. Yeah. With you know the HBO show or whatever. Um, I was curious because when that came out, there was all these um, you know, things about about Jerry West and and how he was portrayed in the show, and everyone was kind of like, you know, getting on the show's case, like Jerry West is not this guy, he's, you know, they portray him as kind of this like tortured, tortured soul, like he just, you know, needs to you know, win all the time or whatever. Uh, was he portrayed poorly in your opinion or was it, was it accurate? That's a good question. To me, I'm actually shocked that he's upset by the portrayal if he still is. Number one, he was a tortured soul who needed to win. Like he was, actually, he was a tortured soul who needed to win. Um, I thought the portrayal was pretty spot on. Now, I've, I've said a different, it's funny, coming from the book world, and dipping my toe a little bit in the different world, the TV world, I've said to other people involved in the show, like, you have to understand where he's coming from. I don't know how you can't, like, you have to understand, like, there is a real human being named Jerry West. And there's a character on TV now named Jerry West. And while it is based on him and it's based on his behavior, it's not exact. Like, it's a, it is a, um, it's a dramatic show. It's not a documentary. So you're Jerry West. You're watching this. You're like, that's, that's not me or... I never said those words or I never, I didn't do that. I think you have to understand it and, and understand the perspective of someone who doesn't want that out there and doesn't like how it looks. It doesn't mean you have to agree with his take or feel like his take has a lot of value to you, but I a hundred percent get it. You know, if someone did a show tomorrow about boring Southern California journalists who are losing their hair and they had a Jeff Perlman character and they have me like having sex with some stewardess. Number one, I'd be psyched because that would be me. <laughs> Number two, sweating, just sweating. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's just like, I get it. I'm just saying, I always get it. I get it with Bo Jackson. Like, I get it. Some guy re- comes out to you and he's like, I want to, I'm writing a biography of you. Oh, that's great. Um, how much are you paying me? Well, I'm paying you nothing. Oh, well, how much of a say do I have in the final product? You actually have no say. Oh, but can I tell you some things just I prefer you don't mention there? I mean, you can, but I'm probably not going to, I'm probably not going to listen to you. Like I get why people don't want to be profiled and why they don't want to be portrayed. I a hundred percent get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember, I mean, I, I love the bears. That's, the bears are my team. I remember Mike Ditka getting all fired up about, you know, the, about how Walter, but he, what, but I, I think it's like, did you read it, Mike? <laughs> did you read the book? He said he would spit on me. The guy reporters like if Jeff Perlman were here, if the author were here, what would you say to him? What would I say to him? Yeah. What would you say to him coach? Puh. I'm like, you haven't read the book, right? You haven't read the book. Like yeah. you haven't read the book. So come on. Is that really what, ha- what he said? Yes. He said he spit on you? Mike 100%. He said he spit on me. I'm like, all right, buddy. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. He would, I would be okay with it if he read the book. If he yeah. read the book, you have, can have every, but I had guys, I remember like Emery Moorhead, their tight end back then. Yeah. He was a little critical and he actually reached out to me and he said, you know what? I read the book. You did a great job. Like, and that's all, even if he reached out to me and said, I read the book, I still think it sucks. That's fine. At least read the book. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I guess in terms of looking back at, uh, I don't want to, Matt, this is, you had a great question in here about, about Kobe. One that I think. Oh, well, yeah, I guess it kind of ties in. So like, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, Bo Jackson didn't really, you know, didn't really kind of, he didn't really care about the book, you know, kind of does his own thing. 
on the total opposite is Kobe, you know, this kind of, you know, self-absorbed guy, I guess, if you want to say maybe lack of better, lack of a better term, do you think he would have had responded to you at all about uh, how you wrote about him in uh, Three Ring Circus? I don't. Because, you know, he didn't talk. Shaq talked. Pretty much everyone talked, but Kobe did not talk. Yeah. But I don't think I wrote anything that was that about Kobe that was that overly shocking. Like, um, yeah. he, I mean, details are, there's some details people didn't know, et cetera. But like, yeah. he was an immature kid. He did act like a jerk. I think he would acknowledge it at night, 18 years old. He was an immature kid who acted like a jerk. Like, so I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think it was a, a quote unquote mean portrayal of Kobe Bryant. I think it was really accurate. And it's basically the portrayal of a young guy finding his way in this world who was really self-assured and use that self-assured nature to become a legendary NBA player, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, listen, I, I, one other thing I wanted to, that I did notice someone that's got, I know your wife has done some great books about being a parent. I've got a one-year-old that just turned, you know, Charlie just turned one. So there's things I start to think about um, in terms of, you know, even like a, a cell phone. And as my kid gets old, oh. like, you know, schools, and I mean, I live in South Philly, you know, my wife and I, but you know, I, I just, I wanted to give, give a shout out to your wife, Dr. Perlman for, you know, for being a great resource. And I'm, there's some great books that she has as well, that in terms of talk about some of those, you know, those parenting. So you, you got, you got two kids, one starting college or maybe one's a sophomore at UC San Diego and the other is a high school junior. Wow. And you've gone to goes fast. Like concerts and stuff, right? You, you went to Kendrick Lamar, I think with your kid. So my kid, I'm so lucky. I'm lucky with one out of two. I raised my daughter right, but now she's really in the K-pop. There's nothing I can do about that. Wow. But it was totally fine, but it's not, you know. Uh, and um, But my son is diehard hip-hop, diehard hip-hop. And recently, um, we saw Kendrick Lamar. We saw J. Cole. We saw Tyler, the creator. And then we saw Nas with Wu-Tang and Busta Rhymes. Wow, that's amazing. That yeah. That came so, through Philly a few months ago. Oh. A couple months ago, yeah. Freaking love Nas. I love him. Yeah, I do too. So I love that my son is like, and he's interested, you know, I introduced him to hip hop and now he's introducing me to artists, which is kind of a cool little. That's cool. That's exciting. No, is, is not, I mean, hearing that stuff now is a, I, I, my kid's middle name is Vetter. And now that I'm, now that he's getting older, it's kind of like, ah, you know, dad, why why did you name me? You know, I'm, I could see that maybe coming up at, (laughs) at at some point. You, uh, you got to take him. I I went with my wife a few weeks ago out here in Southern California, Dana Point, Eddie Vedder, it's a festival every year, the Ohana Festival. And you've heard of it three day outdoor concert. He performs one of the nights. We saw Pink. We saw Pink. It was the three uh, headliners were one night it was Eddie Vedder. One night it was um, Stevie Nicks. And one night it was pink and I wasn't, I would have picked better, but I have to say pink can freaking bring it pink can sing. I saw you, you give her, give her a lot of love. You, yeah, the show was great. Yeah. So there you go. That's awesome. Are you still, so we, we're near Delaware. I mean, for the most part, your, your school, um, are you still running? Do you still get out and run, get miles? I play basketball a lot, but um, I had a back injury several years ago. So my running days are pretty much behind me. Gotcha. It's a bummer. Night, I, I, there's that famous pick that well oh, no. that you put out of the the hen tights, like hen tights were such a, a cool thing back in back in 1990. So, 
Well, listen, Jeff, we'll get you out of here, man. I, I again, I, I very much appreciate, you know, you being such a, a great advocate yeah. for all things writing and um, listen, but we really want to encourage anybody to, you can pre-order the book right now. Um, you know, well, actually by the time this, we put this out on the 24th, I want to encourage everybody to, to pick up really not only the, you know, the last folk hero, but you know, all your stuff. I mean, you've, you've given all you know, I could speak personally a hell of a lot of joy and, in, in your stuff and, and keep it up, man. Thanks so much for the time. And, and we appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you both so much. And congrats on the Eagles, man. This is your year. Oh, thanks. Man. Before we go, I want to ask you one more question. Have you spoken with J.R. Ryder recently? <laughs> I love J.R. Ryder. J.R. Ryder and I came up, came off great, but I've not, he, he's not coming over for Hanukkah this year. Not <laughs> I love, I read, I read free ring circus book was yeah. incredible, but he, that, I, that was one of my favorite parts of the whole book that my, that ending uh, chapter was my cool. mom might listen to this. I don't think, can you just tell that story real quick? Is that okay? And then we'll get you yeah. out of here. I, um, I was researching the book and uh, I like how you say your mom might listen. And um, Lakers had a player named J.R. Ryder for a very brief period of time, but he was, he was known to be crazy and erratic and threaten reporters and kind of drugs and a lot of stuff. And, and all people always said like a big heart, but just couldn't get it out of his own way. And um, I wanted to talk to him, but all I had was an address and I was going to Arizona and he lived in Arizona so I'm just, I'm going to go knock on his door. It's always terrifying. It's like, I've, I've knocked on many doors in my life. And I always say, it's like uh, flying in really, really bad turbulence. Well, you think you'll be okay, but you know, you're like, you're not hundred percent sure. And um, I knock on the door, little kid answers. I'm like, Hey, is JR here? I have a book with me. I have my USFL book with me. Hey, is JR here? Hold on. Woman comes to the door. Hey, I'm here to see JR Ryder. Hold on. Closes the door. I hear these two people kind of barking at each other, a woman and a guy. J.R. Ryder, former Laker, comes to the door. Who are you? Hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a writer and I'm working on a book and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote this book and nah, man, nah. <laughs> you just, you just show up, bruh. You just show up, bruh. You just show, <laughs> you just show up and he opens the screen door and I'm like, craps. And he's like, bruh, nah. Nah, you can't, bro. You can't, bro. What? What's that book you have? And I'm like, uh, it's a book I wrote about the USFL. It's his old football league. He's like, is that the Trump? That's a Trump league. I'm like, uh, I'm like, yeah. He's like, you can't just, bro. You can't. You can't. What are you writing about? Like, doing a book about the Shaq Kobe years. I'm like, you were kind of an important guy. You were there. All right, man. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. So. Within like a very scary 30 second span, I thought J.R. Ryder was about to kick my ass too. We ended up talking on the phone. He's like, I can't talk now, but I'll give you a call. Speaking for an hour and a half, two hours on the phone. And he was lovely and great. That's amazing. That was, that was so, such an awesome story. I love that story. When I imitate him, I like going, nah, nah. <laughs> nah. It's, so it's like he keeps coming outside. What are you doing? What, what you book doing? is this? Is that the Trump? <laughs> That's yeah. good stuff, Jeff. We'll salute to you, man. All, all the best. Right. We'll look forward to continuing to follow your work. And, and uh, yeah, everybody needs to pick, pick the book up. And thanks so much, Jeff. Thank right. you. Time. Thanks for taking thanks the for time. Really Take appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank Take you. care, guys. Bye-bye. Rock Rock
to a solo, get in the flow, and you can picture like a photo. Music makes mellow, maintains to make melodies for MCs, motivates to break some everlasting. I can go on for days and days with rhyme displays that engrave deep as X-rays. I can take a phrase that's rarely heard, flip it. Now it's a daily word. I can get iller than arm, I'll kill any bomb, but no alarm. Rock Kim will remain calm. Self-esteem make me super superb and supreme. Before a microphone, still I fiend. This was a tape. I wasn't supposed to break. I was supposed to wait, but let's motivate. I wanna see it and keep following and swallowing. Taking the making, biting and falling. Brothers try another die to get the formula. But I'ma let you sweat, you still ain't warm. You a step away from frozen, stiff as if you're posing. Digging to my brain as the rhyme gets chosen. So follow me, I will you thinking you were first. Let's travel at beneficent speeds around the universe. What could you say as the earth gets further and further away? Planets are small, the balls of clay. Astray into the Milky Way. Worlds out of sight, far as the eye can see, not even a satellite. Now stop and turn around and look. As you stand in the darkness, your knowledge took. So keep staring soon, you suddenly see a star You better follow, it consists of all This is a lesson if you're guessing And if you're following, hurry, hurry, step right up And keep following the leader Follow the leader, I can't You're the journal, I'm the journalist Am I eternal or an eternalist? I'm about to flow long as I could possibly go Keep you moving cause the crowd says so dance Cuts rip your pants, every beat on the blades Bleeding to death, call an ambulance Pull out my weapon and start to squeeze A magnum as a microphone, murdering MCs Let's quote a rhyme from a record I wrote Follow the leader Yeah, don't Cause every time I stop it seems you're stuck Soon as you try to step off yourself to struck I came to overcome before I'm gone By showing and proving and letting ours be born then after that I'll live forever You disagree, you say never Then follow me from century to century You remember me in history Not a mystery or a memory Called by nature, mind raised in Asia Since you was tricked, I have to raise you From the cradle to the grave But remember, you're not a slave Cause we was put here to be much more than that But we couldn't see because our mind was trapped But I'm here to break away the chains Take away the pains, remake the brains, rebuild my name I guess nobody told you a little now it's dangerous It can't be mixed, diluted, it can't Change the switch, here's a lesson if you're guessing and following Hurry, hurry, step right up and keep following the leader Follow the leader, rock him or sing 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 Freestyle, lyrics of fury My third eye make me shine like jury You're just a rental rapper, your rhymes are minimate I'll be here when it fade, I watch it flip like a renegade I can't wait to break and eliminate On every trade of a snake, so stay awake And follow and follow, because the tempo's a trail The stage is a cage, the mic is a third rail I rock him, the fiend of a microphone I'm not him, so leave my mic alone Soon as the beat is felt, I'm ready to go So fasten your seatbelt, cause I'm about to flow No need to speed, slow down and let the leader lead Word to daddy, indeed the R's are roller stones, so I'm rolling Directions is told, then the rhymes are stolen Stop bugging, the brother said dig him I never dug him, he couldn't follow the leader long enough So I drug him, 
It's a danger zone, he should arrange his own face It's just basic, erase and change the tone It's one R in the alphabet It's a one letter word and it's about to get More complex from one rhyme to the next Every be easy on the flex I've been from state to state, followers tailgate Keep coming but you came too late, but I'll wait So back up, regroup, get a grip, come equipped You're the next contestant, clap your hands, you want a trip The price is right, don't make a deal too soon How many notes get your name this tune? Follow the leader, is a title theme task Now you know you don't have to ask Rappers rhythm and poetry cuts create sound effects You might catch up if you follow the records he wrecks Until then keep eating and swallowing You better take a deep breath and keep following the leader Follow the leader by chemistry Keep following the